0: I'd like to take your Bibles out and I'd like to turn with me, please, to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. If you're a bit unsure where that is, if you go to uh, just after First and Second Kings, towards the beginning of the the, uh, the New Testament, there you'll find uh, them, followed by One and Two Chronicles, uh, then Ezra, and finally Nehemiah course the easiest way would look up the table of contents and you get a page number and then you can turn straight there that's always a good way or you can just program it into your phone or your, ta- your uh, tablet that you've got there and away you go so all right isn't it wonderful that we have the word of god available to us in so many different mediums If you haven't got a bible with you this morning you can follow along with me on the screen although uh, i think uh, you're going to start there at verse five i'm actually going to start at verse four this morning so sorry to the guys at the back there who've set that up but uh, we'll commence at verse four these are the words of god through the prophet nehemiah he says as soon as i heard these words i sat down and wept and mourned for days and i continued fasting and praying before the god of heaven to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. These are the words of god to us today let's pray father help uh, us this morning help this not just to be an exercise in information sharing and receiving but instead lord allow it to be a time where your holy spirit works in our hearts bringing about that spiritual transformation in us that you so desire Lord, as we ponder on these words from Scripture today, help us be reminded afresh that these are not just words of human authors written many, many years ago, but instead, Lord, help us to be convicted and convinced in our minds that these are indeed the very words of God, the one who holds all things in his hands the one who is indeed creator and sustainer of all things and the one to whom all authority is given, the one in whom we must come and bow before. And so we do that now, Lord. We bow humbly before you and we say, teach us. We invite you, Lord, to do that work of transformation in our lives. Help it begin and continue, not just today, but in these days and weeks ahead. For your name and for the glory of you and your kingdom. Amen. This morning we come to the first of nine prayers recorded in this uh, book of Nehemiah. Nine of Nehemiah's prayers. And as we're going to see through our time in this book, as we spend time in this, uh, this particular book over the coming weeks, we're going to see that Nehemiah was indeed not only a man who accomplished an awful lot for God and for his kingdom and for his people, but that primarily behind all of that great work that Nehemiah did was the fact that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Before Nehemiah acted in many instances, he came and he brought it before God in prayer. He prayed. And the lesson as we come to this passage this morning, the lesson we're called to learn this morning is this, that prayer is primarily the great work of the believer and the church. It's been said from this pulpit before that, uh, that prayer is not just the preparation for the work of God, but in fact prayer is the work of God. And uh, as I said, we are having a, you know, going to have quite a, a heavy emphasis on prayer as a church this year and what a great way to be reminded this morning as we come to this passage and to, uh, to be, uh, uh, I guess, shown and, and taught this beautiful prayer of Nehemiah it just teaches us so much about prayer. As we pick up in verse 4 of our passage this morning, it says, As soon as I heard these things... These are the words, by the way, of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is writing this down. He says, As soon as I heard these things, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Of course, these things that Nehemiah's referring to is the news that has been brought to him by, uh, by Hanani and by a group of, of people who have returned back to uh, Nehemiah there in, 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 uh, in the citadel of Susa there in, in Babylon. And they've brought news of Nehemiah's homeland, Jerusalem and Judah. And, they, and the news is not good. In fact, it's, it's quite devastating for Nehemiah to hear when he says that the walls of the city have been broken down. And the gates of the city have been, have been burnt with fire and the people are in great trouble and shame. You know, the people had been there in, uh, in Babylon in exile for 70 years. And, uh, and uh, previous to uh, Nehemiah writing this letter, a number of uh, the, uh, the people had been allowed to return to Jerusalem and to Judah and to start rebuilding the city and the temple and uh, just sort of start to uh, you know, reestablish themselves back in the land again. And uh, we are told in, in Ezra, chapters 1 to 4, that uh, having returned, you know, they were praising God because this was God's answer to his uh, promise that, 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 that although they would spend 70 years in exile in Babylon, that God would bring them back to the land that he had promised, the land of Jerusalem and Judah. And, uh, and so they saw that this was God answering his, his promises, answering their prayers. But then, you know, the opposition arose, and they wrote a letter to uh, to then this, this king, Artaxerxes, this uh, this king of, uh, of the Persians, and said, look, you know, if you let these people do this, then they're going to rebel against you, and they're going to cause you all sorts of problems, and you need to stop the work now, and so he does. He writes this letter and, and, and stops the work, and then... The, you know, the, the tiny bit of rebuilding work that's, that, that's already taken place is then destroyed again. And this is the word that Nehemiah is receiving. He said, when I heard these words, his heart was so broken that he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days and he, he fasted and he prayed continuously. And we're going to see that that went on for a period of around about 16 weeks. And the reason we know that is because he identifies, when he first heard this news was in the month of Kislev, and, uh, and then in, this, in chapter two, verse one, we see it's the month of Nisan, A four months difference between those uh, between those months, sixteen weeks thereabouts. So Nehemiah had been praying before God. He hadn't been fasting that whole time, of course. Person can't go that long that that long without food and, and water. But he would have been fasting intermittently, you know, during that time as he as he prayed to God. Nehemiah himself. You know, knew that, uh, that you know, he had this, as we saw last week, he had this such a, a burden for God and for you know, for God's glory to be, uh, to be really shown to people and for God's people to flourish in the land that God had promised, for his people to be devoted to God. And, and Nehemiah was a man that was very much devoted to God. And this news brought Nehemiah to his knees in prayer. And the first question that I think this poses for us this morning is this: When it comes to prayer, is prayer our first response? I've actually um, I think that's working. I better help it if I turn that on, doesn't it? Is that working okay, there, mate? No. There we go. So yes, so we titled this, uh, this message today, The Work of Prayer. And the question, as I said, is, when it, what is our first response when faced, when, when faced with the challenges of life? Do we immediately bring them to the Lord in prayer? I am naturally a self-dependent person. And that, in many ways, certainly contributes to me not being particularly good at prayer. You know, when faced with challenges and obstacles and things like that in my life, my natural tendency is to try and overcome them first using my own abilities and my own resources and those things that are sort of available to me that I can go to immediately. And it usually takes me a while to get around to praying about things. And a classic example of that is, you know, just we've just been on holidays, and one of the things we had to do was we had to actually change flights. Uh, in Honolulu to go on to San Francisco and we, uh, we landed in Honolulu. It was about two and a half hours uh, uh, that we had to be able to get through, you know, get our bags and get through uh, immigration and, uh, and then recheck our bags and that sort of thing. And so we thought, yeah, we got plenty of time. Two and a half hours is oodles of time. Of course, it was the government shutdown over in America at that particular point in time and so they had skeleton staff that was going on in all the airports and things like that took them forever to get our bags off the plane. took us forever to get through customs. And then we had to recheck our bags in, and that took a long time. And then we had to go back through security again. And uh, we, we got in this line. There was only a couple of places where you could do that. And we got in this line, and this line just seemed to be you know, incredibly long. And, uh, and it just didn't seem to be moving at all. That's not the line, by the way. I didn't take a photo of the line, but it, was, <laughs> gives, gives, you the, it gives you the idea. And we're standing there in this line waiting, and uh, and it's just not moving. Apparently, they some person came past and said, "Oh, yeah, there's a someone right at the beginning, at the front of the line needs a special screening, whatever that meant." And so uh, the the line had come to a complete standstill. And Coral and I were standing there. And we're looking at our we're looking at our uh, phones with the with a time, and time is ticking away. And we've got forty five minutes before we get to, uh, before our, our next plane leaves. And as time is ticking by, I'm getting more and more worried, more and more anxious, a little bit irritable, and uh, thinking, what on earth can we do? Well, unbeknownst to me, and I think uh, in many ways uh, quite a uh, rebuke to me a little bit later on, there was Coral feeling just as anxious and as worried about the situation as I was, but she was silently praying praying that God would indeed help us in that situation. And uh, not long after that, this lady came past working for the airline and she, and we said, look, you know, we're going to miss our flight and she took us through and got us actually on the, uh, the plane with, uh, with only just a few minutes to spare. But it was just, yeah, again, as I said, it was just a, a rebuke to me that uh, I didn't actually know that Coral was praying until I saw it on her Facebook post a little bit later on, a, a few days later. <laughs> <clears throat> Facebook posts, yes, there you go. Why is it that prayer is so often a last resort for us? Why is it? You know, in so many instances, we can be so guilty of exhausting all other avenues, can't we, before we finally decide to pray about something? And I think it comes back, you know, I think the reason we do that is it comes back to a few things. I think, first and foremost, we live in uh, a society that, uh, you know, we've got so many resources available to us, don't we? We've got so many things at our disposal, at our beck and call, that we can just, you know, look to. And, and it's so easy to fall into the mindset that we can, we can do this ourselves. We can, we've got this. We can handle this. And we wouldn't necessarily say it out loud, but practically we live as though we don't need God. We've put our trust in other things before him. You know, as I was preparing this week, I thought, how many times do I go to Google before I go to prayer? You know? We put our trust in other things before God. I think another reason we don't pray is because we've lost confidence in the God to whom we pray. We doubt God. You know, will God really answer my prayers? Can I really count on God to to do this thing that, that, that I need him to do right now? Will God hear me or will my prayers just bounce off the ceiling? You ever asked yourself those kind of questions before? I think we all do, don't we? We need to be reminded afresh of the importance of prayer. And we also need to be reminded of how to pray. I think we've lost that art in many ways. Nehemiah's prayer, as we come to it this morning, is, is really helpful in both of these things. It not only reminds us afresh of the importance, the importance of prayer and the effectiveness of prayer, but it also gives us a beautiful way of, of, of how to pray. And so, when it comes to prayer, we're going to look at three things again this morning. The first thing we're going to see in terms of Nehemiah's prayer this morning when it comes to prayer is we need to consider the one to whom we are praying. We see that in verse 5 of our passage today. Look at how Nehemiah addresses God. He says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. I wonder if the reason many Christians struggle with prayer is because we have a limited or a distorted understanding of the God to whom we pray. Nehemiah says, O Lord, that Lord is in capitals. It's, the, it's God's personal name. It's how God first you know, revealed himself to Moses there at the burning bush in Exodus 3. This is, it's his personal name, the name by which he's, you know, he, he says, this is how, for, for how I want you to know me. And it reminds us the fact that God is indeed, I'll put them all up there together so we're going to work our way through this, but God is a personal God. First and foremost, God is a personal God. He has revealed himself to us in order that we might know him. You know, if if God had not revealed himself to us, then we could not know him. We could, we could you know, sort of try to, to you know, sort of gain some kind of impressions about God and that sort of thing. But we could not really know God for who he is unless he showed himself to us first. And God took the time to do that. God has revealed himself to us. And and in the Old Testament, he revealed it through his name. And in the New Testament, we see that he's revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. And God says, you want to know what I'm like? Then look at Jesus, because Jesus is me. Jesus is God. And I want you to know me. Just as we would, you know, if we introduce ourselves to someone we don't know, we do that in order to gain connection and relationship, and God does that too for us. God is a personal God, not just some impersonal force. And so when we pray to him, we can come to him knowing that he's indeed already He's already initiated the relationship, and he invites us to come to him. But this name also reminds Nehemiah that God is not only personal, but that he is also the only true God. He uses this name for himself in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the only God, he is the one true God. And yes, as Jake said this morning, you know, there are lots of things in our world today that people worship as gods. But ultimately, they are false gods. And sadly, we can fall into the, into the, the, uh, the, the trap of, of worshipping those things ourselves and trusting in those things ourselves. But ultimately, they will leave us completely disappointed. God is the one true God, the only God. And not only does this verse bring out the fact that he's the only God, but it again makes clear this personal nature of God because it says, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And God himself desires this personal living relationship with each and every one of us. He invites us into that relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. Nehemiah then goes on to refer to God as the God of heaven implying that God is indeed the sovereign God, the one who is enthroned above all things, the one who made all things, the one who sustains all things. He is the one who is in control in Nehemiah's day, not only there in that, that citadel in Susa, in, in Babylon, but not, and, and not only in Jerusalem some thousand kilometers away, but in all of the lands that existed in that day. Nehemiah could, could know, without any shadow of a doubt, that, that God was in control. And no matter what it looked like from a, from a human perspective, in terms of, you know, these, these uh, opponents of God and of these opponents of his people, look at though they looked like they were uh, They were winning the battle, that God was the sovereign God. He was the God of heaven who still had all things in his hands. And Nehemiah had that confidence in him. And that's a reminder to us today, isn't it? When we look at our world around us and we sort of see so much evil that is rampant in, 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 our, in our culture and in our world, we see so many, so many uh, uh, things that are in opposition to God and to his people and to his church. And it can be so disheartening for Christians living today knowing that you know, it seems as though God's enemies are the ones that win in the battle that God himself is still the sovereign God. And we need to remind ourselves of that day after day after day, that he is the one that's in control. And as Psalm 2 reminds us, you know, kings can make all of their plans and that sort of thing, but the one in heaven, the God in heaven looks down and he scoffs at them. There's nothing beyond God's power, God's reach, and God's abilities. And that's why Nehemiah then exalts God as the great and awesome God, the all-powerful God. There is nothing that God cannot do. And as he humbles himself before the all-powerful God, as he exalts God as that great and awesome God, it reflects also that aspect of of fear and reverence that one should have in the presence of such a mighty and powerful God. When it comes to our praying, folks, we come before the God who, remember back there in in Exodus where he appeared to the people on Mount Sinai? And as the people were there at the foot of Mount Sinai, God descended on this mountain in these clouds and thunder and lightning and fire. And the mountain shook. With Isaiah, who was, was given a vision of God in his, on his throne in the temple. And Isaiah says, as I was brought in into the very presence of God there, that he shook, that he trembled so much that he fell down as though dead. And I wonder today do we, as the people of God, hold God like that? That he is this mighty, powerful God? Do we have that reverence for him? Do we humble ourselves truly? before this awesome and amazing and mighty God. (coughs) Nehemiah goes on to say that although he is this awesome and amazing and powerful and mighty God, but there is also this loving and faithful God who keeps his covenant of love. In other words, Nehemiah is reminding himself again that this incredible God, this amazing God, is for his people. You see this? He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. And I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. God is for his people because he is the loving and faithful covenant-keeping God. It reminds me again of the, the words in Matthew seven verses seven to eleven, where Jesus says, speaking about God and God's character, says, "Ask and it will be given to you; seek and you will find; knock and the door will be open to you." For everyone who asks receives; he who seeks finds; and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is speaking about how we should approach God in prayer, and he says, "Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake?" If you then, though you are evil, know how to good give give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask you? In other words, Jesus is saying here that when we come to God, we, we don't, you know, we shouldn't expect you know that God will just withhold things or he'll he'll treat us with some maliciousness or, or in that kind of way. He'll give us things which you know we don't necessarily ask for. If we ask for a fish, he'll gonna give us a snake or and that sort of stuff. God says, Jesus says, you know, human beings, we treat our our, the ones we love better than that. And and God, who is far greater than all of us, He treats us so much better than, than anyone could ever treat us in this world. Those who love us the most, God is for His people. Sadly, unfortunately, that, well, that, that that verse has sort of been taken out of context at times and thinking, yes, we can come before God and ask him for anything and and, and he'll give it to us. That's not what this, this passage is saying at all. As later on we'll know, we'll see that you know God speaks to us to, to pray according to his will and to his purposes, that God is the one who is sovereign, not us. God is not some personal genie that we control. But what it is saying is that we can come before God and pray to him and expect that God will show us love and grace and mercy and goodness. Not the opposite. We need to pray in faith, believing that God indeed will act. If we pray in accordance with God's character and his will as revealed in his word, then we can have a renewed confidence that God will indeed answer our prayers. Now, one of the things that's really clear in this prayer of Nehemiah is this that uh, that his prayer is very much informed by scripture and what it tells us about God in fact this beginning of this prayer that Nehemiah prays is almost a direct repetition of Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9 and so so often our prayers you know they can be mechanical and wishy-washy but if we want our prayers to be more effective, then I believe that we need to be praying prayers that are very much informed by the word of God. Second thing that Nehemiah does in terms of this prayer is that he comes and he confesses the people's unworthiness before God. In any way, Nehemiah's sort of having, you know, his... his, his He's having his perspective realigned again. He's sort of saying, you know what, God, you're the one who is on the throne. You're the one who is, has all authority and, and rule and sovereign over my life. And I'm the one who needs to submit to you. He reminds himself of God's of, of God and his character, and then he and this leads him to confess his sin and the sin of the people before God. Yes, God is a faithful God, but we ourselves are so unfaithful. Nehemiah is very much aware that the predicament of the people who experienced there in exile and now even their experience back in the land of Judah was was so much a result of their own sin. Their own sin and their unfaithfulness to God and, and keeping the covenant with him. Again, Nehemiah quotes Deuteronomy four twenty-five to twenty-seven. Look, he says. He says in verse seven, "We have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses." In other words, in the law that you had given Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Nehemiah is saying, the reason we are in exile, the reason we are going through all of this hardship is because, Lord, we have not kept that covenant with you. We have not been faithful towards you. And we know that you said that if we weren't, then you would lead us, that you you um, you would discipline us as your children, Lord, through taking us into exile. You know, the people got themselves in trouble. The reason the the people found themselves in trouble is because they trusted in their own abilities and resources, in the resources of others. That was what got them in the predicament in the first place. They didn't trust God. They didn't worship God. They worshipped the other gods. They worshipped the gods of the people around them. They thought that their gods were stronger. They thought that their ways were better than God's ways. And they put their hopes and trust in those things. God says, that's what got you into the predicament in the first place. And so Nehemiah says, Lord, we need to first come before you and recognize that we have indeed sinned before you, the holy God. And Nehemiah confesses their sins of commission, that is those sins that they have willfully and deliberately done in disobedience to God, but also their sins of omission, where he says the things that they have failed to do. And you know, for the people of Israel, it would have been easy for them to blame the Babylonians for their situation and for their hardship. And how many times do we, when we get ourselves in in situations and and difficulties and that sort of thing, that we quickly you know seek to blame those around about us for our own you know for these for these things going on in our lives, when in actual fact it's because of our own sin that has led us to that place in the first place. Nehemiah is all too aware that the people's sin was to blame. It's a reminder for us ourselves to reflect on our own situations to see if the hardship that we're going through is a result of our own sin and not just to try and rationalize it or justify it. But the hope that we have as the people of God is this that we're to realize that our sin is not the end of the story. Look at what Nehemiah says in the passage. It says, Yes, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, if you come to me, confessing that sin with that desire in your hearts to keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, no matter how far scattered you are, no matter how far you may feel as though you are from me, from there, God says, I will gather them and bring them back to me, to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Now sin is not the end of the story. Jesus, through the gospel writer, through John in, in John's letter, John, uh, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, reminds us of the fact that God is indeed a forgiving God. First John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. In other words, to give us a fresh start. How many times do we need a fresh start in our lives, folks? We come to God. Our sin is not the end of the story. But the gospel is the answer to our sin. That Jesus has given his life for us. He has paid the penalty for our sin. And that through repentance and faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we are brought into this wonderful relationship with God. In fact, the first step on the road to spiritual renewal is this. It is a recognition of and a repentance of our sin. And if we want to move forward with God, we must recognize those things in our lives which are in contradiction to his word and and how he would have us live as his people. We need to confess our sin and ask for his forgiveness. One of the things that we cannot presume about God is that God will bless us when we continue to be disobedient to him and his ways. Now, God may still choose to do that, and in many ways he does. But we cannot presume God's blessing on us and on his work in this place and in our lives if we continue to disobey him. We need to ask God to reveal those things in our lives, anything in our lives which is hindering his work and then to be responsive to his voice when he does, through confession. Nehemiah says, God, you are the great and awesome God. We are sinful people. But thank you that that is not the end of the story, that you are the covenant-keeping God. And so in the third point of the message this morning is this, is that in light of this, Nehemiah calls on God to act in light of his character and promises contained in his word. We see it in verses eight to ten, particularly, you know, it uh, you know, in verse ten, it says, "These are the prayers they are these." Speaking of God's people, it said, "They are your servants, Lord, and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand." And so, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Isn't that a marvelous? Isn't that a marvelous description of the people of God, the people who delight? To, to to delight in your name? Do you delight to fear the name of God? Really, truly? Is that the banner over your life? My lo- That banner over my life is my delight is indeed to fear God, to love him and to serve him. What a great way to be known but nehemiah says lord according to your character and your promises this is how i'm going to come to you in prayer I'm remembering that you are indeed the covenant-keeping God. Uh, Nehemiah is quoting again Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through to 4 here in this passage. Again, he's bringing it back to Scripture, reminding himself afresh of who God is and, who, and, and God's character in order that he can pray according to that. And when he prays according to who God is and God's character and God's promises, then Nehemiah can have an incredible confidence in knowing that God, is, God doesn't go back on his word. And what God has promised, he will fulfill. And so we can pray confidently those things and expect that God will indeed answer those prayers. Nehemiah you know, says to God, God, these are your people. You cannot now abandon these people whom you've already redeemed for yourself without going back on your word. Lord, you can't do that. And so Nehemiah asks God to show him mercy in verse 11. Grant your servant mercy. Grant him success today. Grant him mercy in the sight of the king, this this king Artaxerxes. Nehemiah knew that God is always faithful to his promises because he's the covenant-keeping God. You want to be reminded about that, I I urge you to look at Romans 8 later on. But the other thing that we see here is not only does Nehemiah pray in accordance with the word of God, but he prays with patience. You know, yes, he knows God will answer, but he knows that God is going to answer in his time, not in Nehemiah's time frame. And so Nehemiah waits patiently for God to answer. We're not good at that, are we? We're not particularly patient people when it comes to to, you know, wanting God to answer our prayers. But we need to wait patiently. It's interesting that, you know, he prays this prayer and says, give your your servant success today. And day after day after day, Nehemiah prayed that prayer. Give your servant success today. And Nehemiah prayed this prayer for 16 weeks. And then God answered his prayer. Some of you have been praying for more than 16 weeks. You've been praying about things for 16 years. But I encourage you, if you are praying in line with God and his character and his promises, then God will indeed answer that prayer. We can be confident and assured of that. But we need to wait patiently on the Lord nehemiah prayed patiently we need to be we need to be patient prayers and the other thing that we need to just be reminded of here is the fact that nehemiah in his praying is prepared to be used by god in answering his own prayers sometimes we want to pray things to god and we want to pray that you know god will do this and he'll go he'll do that but we don't want god to use us in the process God, please, save those people over there in Thailand who we as a church pray for week after week after week after week. Pray, Lord, that you will indeed reach into their hearts and into their lives, that you will expose them to the gospel, that the light of your gospel will indeed bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. But don't send me, Lord. We need to be people who are prepared to be used by God to answer our own prayers. Ultimately, prayer is not about getting God to do what we want him to do. But prayer is more about having our hearts and our lives brought under his sovereign authority. That was how Nehemiah prays here. Nehemiah prays very much knowing that he is under the sovereign authority of God. Prayer very much is about us being conformed to God's will, not the other way around. And yet, because God is our Heavenly Father and he invites us to come to him with every concern of our hearts, we can come, bring them before him, according, and ask him to act according to his grace and mercy in our lives. We can come to God knowing that God is on our side as his people. But that God wants to do a work in us and through us, which may not necessarily fit our own agendas, that may not necessarily fit our own wisdom, our ways of wisdom and, and, and knowledge of how things might work out, but that, but that we come humbly before God and say, God, you are God, I'm not. But I, we pray for your grace and mercy to be displayed And we want you to use us in that process, Lord, in whatever ways you want us to. And we want you to change our hearts and our minds so they're conformed to your will. When we pray, God's answer might be no at times. But ultimately, we can trust God to do what is right and perfect because he loves us and because he is good. And that's the way Nehemiah prays in this prayer. Is that characteristic of our praying today? Is that characteristic of us in our prayers where we're able to come before God and say, God, it's not about my will being done, it's about your will. It's not about my comfort, it's not about my security. It's about your purposes being worked out. And we can trust you because you are a God who is faithful and good and loving. I'm going to come around the communion table now and invite those who are serving on the table. I don't know if we've actually organised eight guys, so if you'd like to come, uh, have a few guys come forward, we'll uh, come to the table here now. We're going to finish our time together this morning around the communion table And it's a wonderful way to finish our service today because what it does is it actually reminds us afresh of the fact that God himself has initiated the relationship with us, that God has done everything possible in order for us to know him and to be blessed by him in relationship with him. That through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that although our sins separated us from God, God through his son Jesus dealt with our sin there on the cross. That Jesus bore our sins in his body there on the cross, gave his life as a ransom for us so that our sins could be cleansed and that we could be set in a right relationship with God, recipients of his love and his grace and his mercy day by day by day. And so in many ways, this table reminds us of the privilege we have as the people of God. It reminds us of the fact that, that our God is a God who, who has reached into our lives, and so we can come to Him in prayer. We can trust Him in all of, in all of life, in all of, in all of life's circumstances and situations, because He loves us. Romans 5.8 remind, reminds us that, that God... You know, when, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a demonstration of God's love for you. If you doubt the love of God for you in your life, then you need only look at the cross. God says whilst, you know, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I invite you to partake of the elements today, to eat of the bread and to be reminded afresh of what God has done for you to be reminded afresh of God's love for you but reminded again too of the fact that, that, that it was because of our sin that Jesus had to go and die on that cross and that we as people we shouldn't try to hold on to that sin and those sinful ways but to let it go Let it go and trust God. So if you haven't, if there are some things that God is convicting you about in your life today, I pray that you just use this time to come before God. Repent of anything that the Spirit might be praying, might be, be, be placing in your heart at the moment, to do that business with God this morning of confession, repentance, but then of faith and trust in Him and of gratitude and thanksgiving for His love. Will you hold the cup as we drink together in fellowship this morning?